Welcome to the Bards FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to a conversation with Eric Post. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots, and blessings to everybody on this Good Friday. And what a good day it is. Tonight, we're going to have an interview from somebody you probably don't know. His name is Eric Post. He's a very interesting story, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. But he's definitely a person that is um, a good example of somebody just getting involved. Uh, A veteran who was a Marine who really saw the problems that were around, started to get involved in the community because he had children and businesses, and he's, he's... really pushed hard to be involved to try to affect change in a really good way. And these are just the good stories to remind us of just what we can do. Before we begin tonight, make sure you're keeping your sleep up and keeping your sleep strong. And to accomplish that, you're going to need good sleep products. There's no better products currently on the market than what is offered by MyPillow. MyPillow.com is not only a great company, but it's led by one of America's great CEOs, Mike Lindell. So when you head on over to MyPillow, you can take advantage of amazing savings by using your promo code BARDS, B-A-R-D-S. Some of those great savings include Giza cotton sheets, which are, Giza cotton is some the most amazing cotton, and they are so amazing to sleep on. You can enjoy those Giza cotton sheets at that discount by using your BARDS promo code B-A-R-D-S. That's 60%, up to 60% off. Also, the classic My Pillow, which is just amazing, nineteen ninety eight right now, and you can again get those great savings by using your promo code Bards B A R D S. And there's many, many more products on the My Pillow site: mattress toppers, mattresses, men's and women's sleepwear, uh, three piece towel sets. Just amazing of how much is going on. So, head on over to MyPillow.com. You're not only are you supporting a great company, but you're modeling the the types of companies that we need more of in this nation. And you're getting great products to help your health and keeping your health strong through good sleep. And right now, when you use your promo code BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, you're going to get a copy of Mike Lindell's book. From It tells his story from addict to one of America's great CEOs. That's complimentary with every purchase. So again, MyPillow.com, you can go to the Bards Nation's landing page, which is BuyPillow.com forward slash Bards. Use your promo code. And then if you want to speak to a Patriot Pillow Counselor, someone will help you walk you right through everything you need. Just call 800-975-2939, 800-975-2939. And again, use your promo code Bards. So we are in a real interesting time, obviously, with so much going on and the derailment of our political system that has been hijacked by elites who have taken it upon themselves to determine what is good for us, what is bad for us, and and ultimately try to force us to subdue to them and worship them. And, of course, we all know how that goes. Before we begin tonight, let me just play a short piece by Glenn Beck, which I think puts a lot of things in perspective of where we are. 
Maybe the reason Democrats and their media don't care about President Biden's mental fitness is because the behind the scenes control is all they need. In fact, I think they prefer it. The left loves unelected power. Everyone in D.C. knows who's really running the show at the White House. It's chief of staff Ron Klain. Republicans in D.C. call him Prime Minister Klain. Listen to this New York Times description of Ron Klain's power. Quote, Mr. Klain is an unquestioned man to see in the Curtin White House, the most influential chief of staff of recent vintage. He is viewed in and out of the West Wing as an essential conductor of the administrative's business, a surrogate for the president. Wow, a surrogate for the president. I don't remember seeing his name on the ballot, do you? Again, quoting from the Times story. Mr. Klain is an expert at keeping discussions with Mr. Biden focused on specific actions, which is not always easy. Quoting, given the president's habit of verbal meanderings, a typical exchange, White House officials say, is for Mr. Klain to suggest something along the lines of, sir, we're recommending that you make these three calls. The White House now sounds like the world's fanciest nursing home, and the left is totally fine with his arrangement. And the left is fine with this. And in, in fact, it's, it's bigger than just the left, as we know. First of all, we have the problems of kind of the expectation of the millennial generation, which right now, believe it or not, is excited about the housing market crash because they think it's going to allow them to buy houses again more affordably. Take a listen to this. Waiting for the housing market to crash so we can finally afford to buy a home. You do understand that's never going to happen, right? Like, don't get me wrong. The housing market is going to crash. Pretty sure I've made a few videos about this and all the realtors and real estate investors were like, oh no, he's talking crazy. But it's very obvious that it's headed for a crash. However, you're still not going to be able to buy a house. That's because in preparation for the housing crash, which the government knows is going to happen, the Fed raised interest rates. So now the only people that are going to be able to afford to buy homes are the people who can do it with cash. And usually the only people with that much capital on hand are corporations. So the Fed's going to keep interest rates high to ensure that the people that are getting homes aren't people that want to live in them. They're people who want to rent them at extortionate rates to everyone else. And you're not going to have a choice because interest rates are going to be too high to afford. Yeah, we call that instead of generation millennial, we call that generation, you just got screwed by your government. And that's the really the real reality of where they are. This is a generation that's put all their hope and and desires into a UBI, a universal basic income, and a socialist economy that somehow will give them great prosperity, and it won't, but it will probably give them a 300-square-foot, low-carbon footprint box that they can rent, and if they're lucky, they might get a microwave. But we have a deeper issue, too, of just how this whole world is currently working, and this is a piece that comes out of the the TV show Yellowstone that kind of places things in perspective of the challenges that we currently have. Look at you guys. I thought moving to class outside for a day would get you off your phones, but you're still staring at your tiny screens. Liking photos of people you've never met, commenting on their lives while they comment on yours. Do you have any idea what's happening in the world you live in? Do you think that the photo on your screen has anything to do with that world? The world you live in is slowly shrinking. There's a tiny group of men who are buying it and stripping it naked and selling you what they extract. 
They're raping your world and selling you what they take. I mean, they sell you the water you drink, the air you breathe, and you line up for it like sheep. They will kill your brother and steal your child and pollute everything you love. And you'll never notice because you're so hypnotized by a world that doesn't exist. We're already in the matrix, whether we realize it or not. For a large many, they are. And the biggest challenge we have is to break away from that and get active in the community. Now, in the good news of that, there are things that are happening. There's good news in the midst of all the bad news. Yeah, of course, we have this challenge with inflation and what's happening with the the soaring prices of everything. But you know, the good news is that as the misery index of the average American suddenly comes home as they're looking at the gas pumps and they're and they're they're staring at the uh, the reality of what Biden's policies have done. And by the way, they're not buying the fact that this is Putin's price hike on gas. They're plainly parking this with this president and this administration. That means that the the index of pain is coming home. The It's almost like all the citizens of Egypt are chafing under the plagues that Pharaoh has brought upon them, and they're beginning to convert in masses to join a backlash movement, a populist uprising, and it's happening. And it is happening, and I think that's a nice lead-in tonight for what we have coming here with an interview with Eric Post. What's the most important in this time, in this day and time, is that we be in, become involved and activated in our communities. And there's going to be very many different versions of that and what we see. Obviously, we have one of the biggest challenges, I think, across the nation is facing the fact that there is such a thing as enemies domestic. And part of that is the fact that many of these people that have been bred in this system and brainwashed in this system have come to hate this system deeply. Adding complication to that is that they've been funded and many of them have been trained and organized by foreign powers and even domestic people who have one sole purpose in mind, to tear down this nation to its very core. The irony is that as we all sit on the outside of a very corrupt and deeply bankrupt, morally bankrupt government, financially too, we're all coming to kind of a common agreement that the government that we currently have has become a despotism. The problem we have on these two sides is the side that wants to bring it all down believes that they have to bring everything down and that anybody and everybody that's part of the system is evil and they'll do anything they can to accomplish that goal with a very naive view that if they strip it all down, it's somehow all going to be better. I think we know better. The real issues that face us going ahead here are far beyond politics. They're going to be the challenges of things like food, which is being the big leveler of all of this time, and taking a charge of our lives again to take to regain sovereignty. Many of those that are challenging the system don't understand the principles of sovereignty. They only stand with the principles of collectivism. And so tonight you're going to get to hear from somebody who has been on the ground with Antifa. He has been working up a documentary film that is expected to come out in the fall. He's worked with a film crew to get inside Antifa and to be present with the riots across this nation. It's a, he has a very interesting perspective, and I now inter- look forward to introducing you to Eric Post. Well, Patriots, I'm really honored today to have Eric Post on. Now, Eric is, a, is an amazing voice that you're going to get to learn about today. He's spent some time with 
embedding literally to do his research with Antifa. He has been a strong voice for conservative values, even in the areas of Portland, Oregon, which itself is, as you all know, is one of the interesting places of liberal strongholds. And Eric is also a veteran from past. So Eric, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm excellent, man. Thanks for having me this morning. It's going to be a lot of fun talking to you. Absolutely. So why don't you start just giving a little introduction to yourself, a little background so people get to know who you are. Yeah. I mean, the, the real quick high level view is I, I, I lived in this area my entire life, went to high school here, straight out of high school, went to the Marine Corps, knowing I wanted a little bit of a challenge. Um, thoroughly enjoyed my service there. It was it was between Desert Storm, Desert Shield and everything else going on. And so I got to travel and, and serve and um and got to see some of the world um, for sure and got to see a little bit about um, young men and women um, deciding to serve and serving for a purpose. It was really great. Um, but I knew it wasn't going to be my career. So I wanted to I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have a business. I wanted to serve my community in that way. So I got out and started being, becoming an entrepreneur. I've been married a long time, um, you know, been with my family or 26 years already. <laughs> we just celebrated our 21st wedding anniversary. Um, and and started in business but then as you start in business um you start meeting a whole bunch of variety of people and as you do that you bounce around uh from influence to influence people with money people without and here in portland it just started becoming obvious what was happening and what wasn't happening and and you started to see a kind of a, a buildup of everything from the homelessness to a little bit of wild wild uh, view of economics and and equity and things like that so I started getting involved here and there, especially in the local schools, and I love I love kids, so volunteer in the schools a lot. And then when the pandemic and riots hit, uh, my activation uh, went full bore. And what I mean by activation, meaning I needed to understand uh, what was happening because nothing seemed to make sense. I'm sure you've been in situations like that, Scott, where nothing makes sense. And when nothing makes sense, you got to try and find out behind the curtain why isn't anything making sense. So. I just started a project, and I'm sure we'll talk about my documentary project, and I started getting activated in terms of my community to help figure out what's going on. And uh, here I am, you know, two and a half years later into working on understanding what was happening across the countries with the riots and protests and rallies and traveled everywhere. We'll talk about that. Um, it's been it's been a really um, eye-opening experience, Scott, like we talked about the other day in terms of seeing this country once you pull the cut, once you pull the the curtain back, and I I realized I kind of walked around a little naive <laughs> all day every day, thinking everybody's a proud, happy American, but here we are. Portland's an interesting place, having lived there for quite a number of years. As I told you before the show, I've I was up there from nineteen ninety or two thousand, I guess, until about uh, I finally was out of Portland around twenty fifteen. So I've had my time in Portland to appreciate its uniqueness and its all its. Uh, very complex culture, and it's it's also dark, underseated underbelly, which exists in that place. Yeah. So all that said, what did you start to see locally that got you interested in getting motivated to start getting involved to understand? Well, at the very beginning, when the, when the lockdowns happened, I, I just saw this this huge problem of the of the of the turning off their brains and turning on their TV or turning on their phones, and so it just started up with conversation after conversation after conversation um, about just the psychology that we're all experiencing and and the ways to lead our family, the ways to lead our communities, the ways to lead yourself, frankly, um, how to how to keep yourself sane and focused and and from getting swept up in any of the hysteria. 
And as a, as a leader of my family, I wanted to make sure that I was doing all the work I needed to do to try and understand the, the landscape from the macro level all the way down here, local community. But then when the riots kicked off, I mean, Portland, Portland was the epicenter of that, you know? And so when that kicked off, I have a bunch of friends who are police officers here in Portland, and I have a bunch of friends who are involved in social services. And I was really, really pulled between these two communities that were just pitched against each other uh, for a period of time. So uh, immediately I started going downtown during the riots and trying to, I would walk the line, Scott, every night between the protesters and the police officers, trying to act as a, me a mediator uh, between the two and trying to help communication and and quell the the thirst for violence at the time and to to learn and I was trying to uncover exactly what was going on so before I actually started my project I just was going downtown um, every night during the day to try and see what I could do to help the situation for sure now the riots started before the lockdown so they were somewhere back I think like 20. I think it was 2018, 2019, weren't they? Well, that that was a whole nother set of riots. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, then we had a break. I was really talking about the George Floyd riots. Um, you know, we, the big riots happened initially when I started activating was when the Trump um, after the Trump campaign, when he was elected and they did an event. The first event was called the um, flag burning extravaganza. And at, that was actually the first time I did a viral video and I ended up being on all 50 states across the country and Maxim Magazine, Tax and Purpose Magazine, you name it, talking about flag burning essentially and what it means as an American and, and then different ways of approaching it. So that was the first time I actually did get really involved was um, at, right after President Trump was elected here. So what did you discover with this, with your peace walk, so to speak, your attempt to bridge both sides? Um, I discovered that was a effort of futility. <laughs> it was, there was nothing, especially one guy could do down there, except for in little micro times that there was nothing I could do to stop it, but there was a lot I could do to understand what was happening. And I just started deepening my understanding of, of the local politics and the local politicians and then the local movements, um, these different groups, um, that would say in, in one side of their face, you know, they stood for these righteous things and, the, and then behind closed doors and behind the, in the darkness would talk about you know, the most violent of acts and, and, you know, really hating their fellow Americans, uh, which was a kind of mind trip for me. So what happened was in 2020 on the 4th of July, I woke up that morning and had been like 35 days into the main riots after George Floyd. And I was like, man, I'm just going to, I'm just going to make a statement. And on the morning of the 4th of July, I just grabbed the American flag off of my house and I went downtown and to the middle of Portland, right where the elk was, where it was being burned. And it was kind of this place of, of chaos. And I got on front, uh, up on top of the statue and I planted the American flag. And in, in front of everybody, I said, listen, here's the deal. If everybody's just going to stay, you know, shouting at each other, chest to chest, shouting at each other, we're not going to get anything done. We're going to continue to burn the city down or we could stand shoulder to shoulder and face some problems as, as, a, as a community. And. Uh, you know, that speech went viral. And then I went back the next day because, of course, that flag that night was taken down and burned. Um, so I went back the next day, collected the ashes, gave another speech. I did a big peace rally here. And just I started getting a lot of attention for um, being not really against anybody in particular, because I think that's a stupid move to 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 fight <laughs> uh, chaos with chaos, but really to kind of stand in the center and to see if I can't get both sides to turn and look for a second, stop shouting at each other. So that's what I did for, for quite a few months. So we're going to get to your part with working with Antifa, but it's an interesting statement you just made about not taking a side. How do you bridge a side with a group of people like Antifa that has the sole intent of tearing things down and burning it? 
Well, it's, it's interesting because when I would sit there and talk to anybody, that was a fairly radicalized position, right, in a group. They were, they were part of a, a group, whether it was Antifa or whatnot, uh, Black Panthers, Brown Panthers, you name it, all, all the different groups. Um, as an individual, if I, let's say I'd be there at midnight and they'd be sitting around this little bonfire and we'd be sitting there chatting. Fairly normal people, fairly normal individual, right? Just talking about the world or talking about their school or talking about whatever. It's it's when they get into these tribes that the, the, the default of madness takes over. So what I learned essentially was a fairly well-intentioned person pushed to the point where they don't feel listened to, understood or whatever, easily gets manipulated and swept up into a radicalized position. And that's what I saw over and over and over and over and over. So speaking to them one on one, you know, it was just a normal, fairly normal conversation. Put two or three together, it's got a little bit weirder. Put ten to a hundred to ten thousand together, and then you had pure chaos. So talk a little bit about your embed, then how you started to get involved in getting inside Antifa. The the main reason why I wanted to do that um, was to get an authentic view of of what was being said and what was happening. I knew if I sat on my couch, man, and just listened to what was being said on the news, I knew I wasn't going to understand anything at all. So I just got up and just started going down there and just wandered around, honestly, just wandered around. Um, I, I was dressed in all black because that's just what you did at the time. You had a mask on. So it was easy to just start having conversations. And I wasn't there to manipulate anybody. I was just there to learn and listen and to understand. Then when I started the documentary project, um, then it was a little bit with a little bit more intent. I want to understand certain things. Why did they want pure chaos or anarchy? What was the reason that they wanted the downfall of America and the federal government? What was the reason they wanted to abolish ICE at the time? What was the reason they were there to abolish all police and replace them with all social workers? You know, and um, I just kept going. So what I learned essentially was there is a difference between an activist and an anarchist. And at the time, Portland was full of anarchists for sure. Yeah, and they came right out of Eugene, Oregon. That's where they were incubated. It's an interesting group. I was actively involved with, uh, I was actually doing some observations when I was working with Department of Defense on the Occupy movement. And it was very interesting to see the breakdowns in the demographics then, which only got worse when you got up to Portland. And it's when they try to incinerate the whole city. Yeah, I was there for Occupy as well. But that was just, again, just the curiosity in me. Um, there, there's a, I think in a lot of people, there's this, there's this itch of service um, that you got to scratch when, when there seems to be chaotic times. And I think that the only way to know how to serve, where to serve, who to serve is to understand as much as you can first. So instead of jumping in and getting activated <laughs> with, with, uh, with blinders on, I tend to make sure that I understand the landscape first to, to see, be real clear about what I'm fighting for, who I'm fighting for, and why I'm fighting. Um, and I say fighting, obviously, both in emotional, intellectual, physical sometimes too. But I, I, I just kind of take that approach, first of all. I got to understand what the hell the landscape is before I know who I'm fighting and why. So this journey took you then across the country, it did it not? Well, what happened was we, we had... We had filmed. So after the 4th of July, I did this peace rally. It was hundreds of people that were, you know, I gathered them in the waterfront. I, I wanted to do it specifically in downtown in the chaos to prove that you could do a an event and have it not be counter, um, you know, protested because that was going on back and forth, back and forth. But then at the time, I became the number one hated most guy for Antifa on the whole West Coast simply for wanting peace. And I didn't really know anything about Antifa at the time. 
and then they were here and whatnot. But oh yeah, they sent Black Block from Seattle and the Bay Area and all over all their social media channels. I was this bad guy because I simply wanted the riots to stop. I wasn't after them. I wasn't against them. It was just I just wanted the city to stop burning, and that was not in their agenda. Um, so yeah, they, I mean, you know, they put out all sorts of hit pieces on me and started doing fake, you know, f everything they do to cancel my businesses, to, to slander my name. And literally I was just like wanting this peace rally for the day. I ended up having to have former Navy SEALs act as my, you know, security guard for me and my family. It got really crazy, um, for, for a few months. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're, they're definitely a violent crew if they think that you're a threat, whether it's based in reality or not. They do that same with the police as well, don't they? Uh, incredibly bad, but, they, but they're very smart about it. Um, they'll pick the trainers at the training department, let's say. And so they'll try and, they'll try and pick apart the structure. They're very smart about it. If they can, if they can you know, weaken the training department and weaken the resolve of the people who are training the officers, they know that they're going to weaken the officers. So you know, they're very specific about who they targeted and why, I believe. What is their method? Because they've got an interesting method of data collection and how they apply it on the line. Yeah, they're very skilled at, at, at uh, let's say, just spewing out the propaganda. So on some of their channels at the time, they might have one, one Twitter handle or, or one uh, social media platform handle, but they might have like 10 people assigned to it. So there would be a constant barrage of posts coming out of it. So if they wanted to dominate a hashtag or or really slam a particular human being and at somebody, they would just do it with with a, with a wave of false information and, and slams against these people, and then and then activate each other. So then all these different little fringe groups would pick would would pick it up, and then they would run with it. And so in the local area, man, it was just a a barrage of digital slams against anybody that they wanted to, and. And at the time, they would even misidentify somebody. So innocent people that were never at an event or never drove a particular car were just getting doxxed and hammered online that had nothing to do with it. And people were like losing their jobs and losing their place of, of where they worked because there was just this, this attack, this digital attack on a human being. It was really sad. To see. They're ruining people's lives that had nothing to do with anything at the time. So this took you to go across the country then? Is that correct? Well, what happened? Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, after we started filming downtown, I realized it was much bigger than just Portland. I was just going to make a, a little film about what was happening in Portland. Maybe it was about police brutality. Wait, maybe it was about Black Lives Matter. We didn't know yet, but we just started researching. Once I started researching, then we realized we had to we had to really expand it. So we ended up in Seattle, L.A., Kenosha, Minnesota, New York, New Jersey, um, Chicago, um, and then in Washington D.C. for election night, inauguration, inauguration night, and also January sixth. So we were a lot of different places for a lot of different events because we could watch the channels and we kind of knew where it was going to pop off essentially. Um, so we were there at almost all the big events for those you know two years. The perception of the media, at least from the, not even just the media, the, the, the alternate media as well has been very focused on a lot of these riots. And most of the riots always center around a group of instigators, which is textbook anyway. And you've got um, other people that fall in. So... From what you're describing, you have talked to both the inner circle of the instigators and those that just kind of go along with the event. Yes. Make some distinctions yes. here and explain that because it, when we look at these events, it's very easy to see only one optic, which is that they're, everyone is the same. So if what, is the, what are the mm -hmm. ideological approaches of those in, as the instigators versus those that are just joining along? 
Well, well, for instance, because I did this for months and months in the same location in Portland or a few of these other locations, we were back, I would see some of the same people. So I would actually watch the progression of radicalization happen. So we'll give you an example. Um, one of the very first weeks um, we were filming here in Portland, there was this, there was this homeless guy. And I would try to really speak to, I'm, when I say everybody, I really tried to speak to the, the, the high net worth individuals of a society and the community and the business community, to the chief of police, to the homeless, to the heads of these individuals, to the local residents, all, everybody, to try and get this wide perspective. So I was talking to this homeless guy one night, and he's like, man, and he was very articulate, Scott. And he was talking about he's been homeless in a lot of places in this country, and he was dealing with some addiction issues. But um, he settled in Portland, and he was a fan of the Portland police officers. He said they they directed them services. They didn't they didn't harass them as long as they weren't making an issue. They were very kind to them and supportive. And and he was full of like, man, this is this is kind of a crazy town. But I am a f supporter of the police officers. Well, then fast forward about four weeks later, about a month later, and now I see him in full riot gear, shoulder pads, helmet, goggles, throwing frozen water bottles at police officers, saying "fuck the police," right? And, and there was this, this radicalization over and over and over. When I watched the same people show up night after night after night, they gradually turned into the most violent, the most uh, disgusting in terms of the things they'd say about the police officers and their families and, and so on and so forth. So it wasn't just necessarily it was kind of a, a two groups, but there was a transition of well-intended, well-meaning people that were there for what they felt like in the heart was a good cause. Maybe it was Black Lives Matter. Maybe it was against you know police brutality. And it was a very just kind of genuine feeling. But then over time, it didn't take long, they'd get swept up in the narrative and they become very violent and very radicalized because it was a normalized in that environment. Do you see that same thing consistent across the country as you went to other places? Absolutely. The psychology that happens when you feel like you're a part of something bigger than yourself, then you lose yourself in those moments. And so I might be talking to somebody, let's say at six o'clock, and and kind of feeling them out. They're very they might even I mean there's even people there that would go there on a date, man. They would take their boyfriend or their girlfriend, they'd go down just to watch or to see what was going on or chant a little bit and have a they'd bring their flasks and drink or you know, smoke a bunch of weed and and just kind of be a part of the thing. Well then once the drums started coming out and once the music started going, then the chants would come, then the megaphones would come out, and then the calls for violence would kind of increase overnight. Then they became part of the people that were you know, breaking windows and, and throwing stuff at police officers and, and lighting Molotov cocktails. You know, it was it was really wild to see. Yeah. Sociology of group dynamics. One of the very interesting psychosis problems of, of humanity. Absolutely. As a veteran, when we take an oath, you take an oath for enemies, foreign and domestic. And in my experience, it's been very difficult for veterans to process this concept of enemies, domestic where do you sit with that now? That was probably the biggest hurdle I had to overcome. Um, you know, again, just kind of being this guy that, you know, was family guy, a business owner, I served as a Marine, proud of this country. I've traveled the world pretty extensively. I know um, what is offered <laughs> to citizens in other countries. I've traveled Africa, Europe, everything else. And um, I'm very proud of the opportunity that this country provides. So I'd walked around just with the basic assumption that's kind of how everybody was, um, you know, of course, with the fringes, not, but in general, you know. And then when I started going downtown and seeing that people were there with the intent, the the premeditated intent to destroy this country, they're Americans, but they were there with the intent to bring down the police, to jam up the judicial system, to 
to get ICE abolished, to villainize anything that stood for any sort of status quo, conservativeness or law and order. It was there. They were there purely with the intent to destroy the fabric of America and looking me straight in the eyes and telling me this. And I would go home night after night after night trying to wrestle with that. How do we have essentially an enemy that's domestic? That's from within. It was. It just took me a long time. It was really easy to imagine a foreign enemy, right? It was very hard to imagine, uh, you know, a twenty-year-old girl or a twenty-five-year-old young man or whatever that was there to destroy America from the inside out. So it did. It, it took me quite a, a quite a while to come to terms with that. Do you find that's a shared difficulty from the other veterans you know? I think even just the citizens. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I think it takes a moment to to realize that when you take that oath of foreign and domestic, it's hard, especially as a young man, you know, an 18 year old man or 19 year old man. It's hard to really understand what that means. I see it now and I get it now. And that has to be one of the most difficult battles to fight is is to be on the front line, especially as police officers fighting the people that are there to protect. Um, that was that was hard to witness night after night for sure. So have you had a chance to follow up now with some of the Portland police in this kind of aftermath that where things have somewhat calmed down in Portland? Yeah, absolutely. I was working with some of the, you know, uh, the lieutenants, uh, the captains all the way all the way up to the chief of police at the time. Um, I was trying to make sure and when I say make sure, meaning I was very curious about what what are they going to have for mental health services and whatnot. Um you know, what was going to happen with the families? What were they doing to consult the wives and the and the children that were affected? They were getting death threats. And the, I would spend nights, by the way, I would leave the riots and I'd go and drive neighborhoods and, and sit in front of police officers' homes because they were receiving death threats at their homes. They were being told their house was going to be burned down. They were going to lock their children, their wives inside their homes and burn the houses down. And these at the time didn't seem like crazy empty threats because they were chaining the, the locks on the police union building with cops inside and lighting it on fire, you know, and they were they were shooting the, uh, these high um, high impact laser beams into police officers' eyes, trying to blind them with their riot gears on, right? So, so these weren't just empty threats, you know. So I would spend night after night after night just sitting in front of police officers' homes, just just to sit there, so I could text them saying, "Hey, do your duty, serve, you know, as you need," and I'll just I'll sit here in front of your family's home. So, it, you know, it. Yes, I have followed up with quite a few of them. And honestly, police officers here have been retiring and quitting and moving and taking jobs in Boise and, and Dallas and um, other places for sure. Yeah. Portland has changed radically since um, or over the past six years as a result of this. And it's it's taken a lot of battle scars. It's also had a very it's a massive perception change across the nation. And as you just said, many of the police officers themselves are leaving how does the community seeing this and how do you seeing the change in Portland? It, it is a completely different town. I used to be incredibly proud when I travel around to talk about being from Portland, Oregon and, and the diversity and the kindness and the welcomeness that was here. And I enjoyed um, the diversity that was here. The diversity of thought, not just the diversity because it's not a diverse, culturally diverse. It's a very white city, which is also incredibly ironic. But the idea of of Portland was was beautiful to me. Um, it's not even recognizable. We're going to be leaving at some point. Um, you know, not just recognizable recognizable physically, but politically, um, culturally, the vibe, the toxicity here is is crazy. And I've I use it as a the analogy. It's like a canary in the coal mine. This is what happens when you let one party rule happen for way too long. And you know, as a mayor, we haven't had anything but a Democrat mayor in over seventy years. <laughs> as a governor, it's you know 
some like 44 years. So um, just one party rule on either side leads to chaos. And, and we're seeing that here for sure. The deeper culture of Portland is always interesting to me because you have some real deep extremes. You've got a lot of wealth, an enormous amount of wealth that sits up on the southwest yeah. and then in the northwest hills. And then you have this other side of Portland, which is very dark. It's the underculture, the underbelly with the strip clubs and the heroin trafficking and the, and the human sex trafficking. Yeah. And it's always struck me how in that, in that concept of Portland of keep it weird, those two groups seem to get along just fine, or at least they would turn a blind eye to each other. However that works. And, it, and yet that middle class was always the one that suffered pretty heavily in the midst of all that. I'm assuming that the middle class has taken more brutality on this. And that again, it's those two classes that are still continuing to try to survive or thrive? Absolutely. But I don't think that's rare. I think that in general, the radical ends of any spectrum have more in common the moderate or the middle class in this case in, a, in an economic conversation. But I've, I've come to find out that radicals of, of the end of the spectrum actually tend to get along more. Um, it's the moderates that either get hammered or they end up fighting it out at the expense or the benefit of the radicals. And that's um, no different here. Um, I, I generally think that there's this, um, there's this propensity here just to assume that because Portland is deemed as this compassionate, um, you know, liberal gets equate, it's equated to compassion a lot that they turn the blind eye because they just assume that all this goodness is being done. But when you, when you walk the streets and you, and you look at this, these homeless camps, that have really just taken over the city. These are not homeless camps. These are open air drug markets. These are open air sex trafficking markets. These are open air truck uh, crime markets. These are places where they're selling stolen cars and catalytic converters and motorcycles and bicycles. These are these are crime syndicate areas <laughs> in the open area um, in front of everybody for everybody to witness where they're using drugs and whatnot. And yet the the left here sends to want to put this false label on them as homeless camps. We got to do something about these homeless camps to help these people. No, no, these people are not here for help. These people are here for crime. And, and I'm not blanking statements, everybody. I'm just saying that at, at, at core, when you go, I'll take anybody down there and I'll walk you through and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. These are not destitute people out on the streets because of affordable housing or because they lost their job. Um, these are, these are deep, deep, dark crime areas for sure. And where are those located in Portland now? All over, Scott. I mean, it's it's not just the center anymore, the fringes in, in Southeast. It is wildly um, permeated into so many parts of town where you would think that it would be kind of considered unacceptable. But people just, instead of doing anything about it, they walk over the needles, uh, you know, instead of like doing something and running for city council or running for the traffic and safety committees. They just simply sweep the soccer fields for hypodermic needles before they let their kids play. It's, it's a wild normalization of things that shouldn't be normal. That weren't normal just a few years ago. They're just accepted here now. Yeah, that's amazing. They, that some of that normalization started when I was there and it was one of the big things was Portland's cleaning crew that they'd send around at night at about three in the morning and, and down by the offices when I had an office downtown to clean up all the human waste that was left in the doorways of businesses while mandating to businesses that they had to allow homeless to sleep in their doorways. So it's kind of this strange um, accepting the problem, not doing anything to fix the problem. Where do you see this going? Because Portland, it doesn't seem like it's through with its spiral to the bottom. 
Uh, no, it isn't. It, it it definitely isn't. There's too much momentum that way. And by the way, I think we have a tendency to feel these kind of doomsday thoughts and to and to feel like things are out of control. I I don't typically fall into that and let my emotions spiral. I'm I'm really trying to have this opinion as an observer. Um, and the project, the documentary, by the way, isn't my opinion of things. It, it's not a project that I put together to kind of, you know, say things through my eyes. I put together a team of people that were very balanced politically, that that had competing views. And we really try to challenge each other to show what was happening, not what we thought was happening as an individual. So the documentary project, in my own personal opinion, are not necessarily intertwined. Um, so that's why my podcast and my book that I'm going to be coming out with is more of just my personal experience and my personal view. So I just want to say that out loud that, that the documentary is not just what I'm talking about. This is my personal views. Um, but the, but the way that people have, um, ushered in, uh, politicians like Joanne Hardesty or like a gubernatorial candidate, uh, candidate, you know, Tina Kotek, um, these are very extreme individuals. And um, they're very unapologetic about their extreme views out in the open that go against what normal people would consider healthy American cities. Uh, for instance, you know, it was applauded that if somebody had an American flag and was waving it, that it was normalized that instantly they were just deemed a white supremacist and they were deemed a Nazi and they were deemed the enemy essentially of the city. So I would have friends or contractors that was doing work downtown Portland. They might have an American flag sticker on their on their car or their truck when they pull up to the job site. They would get surrounded, and people would pull a knife on them and say, "You get out of here with that American flag. <laughs> you don't you don't show that American flag around here anymore." And and that I mean, come on, man. That there's that's the, that's the underbelly that that became to expose itself in the city, and that became normalized. So no, there's a long way this this town has to go, and I think these these elections coming up are going to say which direction we have um, the chance to get to in the next four years. But we're, we got a long way to go, man. Yeah, we do. Elections are an interesting topic. So let's get into that a little bit. You've been pushing for some independent candidates. I'm curious how you see people being successful in Portland or in Oregon for that matter, in a mail-in voting place where we've already pretty much established that much of the counting flip is happening in the algorithms. Unfortunately. Yeah. And there's now there's tons of stories with, uh, essentially that Republican voters that registered as Republicans are now getting their voting registration cards and they're they're not registered that way anymore. They're registered as unaffiliated or independent. And so there's there's all sorts of things or shenanigans, I'll just say shenanigans that are happening or or at least perceived to be happening, which actually is just as dangerous, man. I, let's say it's not even happening, but the perception, the stories of it happening is is just as damaging to our psyche as it actually is happening. So it's the rumors that really get started that then get inflated and then, you know, get run with. And then people don't stop. Like I was said earlier to make sure you understand what you're actually fighting for. They just pick up a social media post and just start running with it. So, and that happens on both sides to be fair. Um, but I don't have a lot of faith in our system here. I did before. Uh, frankly, this is something that's new to me. I've seen the, the, the depths at which people are, are willing to go for power. Um, for the selfish nature of just having power for power's sake, which is something that was foreign to me before. But it's happening here, and it's definitely happening at the expense of the, uh, let's just say the, the authenticity that I thought was the democratic process. And so the reason why I'm actually doing work on campaigns is just as much 
um, to be an example of others who feel like they want to sit back and say, well, I just want them to fix this. I want them to do something about this. I'm trying to tell everybody that they are them. You know, this this idea of of handing off your your autonomy to somebody else is is foreign to me. This idea of of being at the mercy of a small, small, minute group of people is foreign to me. It doesn't make any sense to me that we allow such a small group of people to control so much. So I just simply stand as as a stone that all that shit just bashes itself upon. Um, and I'm relentless about it. So I pursue what I think to be a noble cause, even if I feel like it's a suicide mission, because I feel like that's what needs to be done right now. So I'm putting I'm putting my name, my money, my resources to get you know behind some candidates that maybe they not maybe they can't win, but they're going to change some hearts and minds along the way in the campaign trail, and that's what I'm fighting for. No, I think that's noble, and I, that's good. I just why I was just kind of shaking that out a little bit because there's a lot of money right now being thrown at campaigns and a lot of effort to try to promise a great big change in 2022, which I think is disingenuous to say the least, because it's, we are, we haven't seen a change in the effective system on how the vote is validated. Well, to be honest, the, the Republican party in the, in the state of Oregon is a mess. Before I start blaming anybody in, in general, I try and take a lot of self accountability. So when I look at the party here, that's been losing essentially to provide any balance, it's because they haven't changed their message. They're not coming up with a better message. They're not coming up with something that's, that's votable and electable. They're, it's the same old tired message that we're the quote, the party of law and order. We're the party of this. It's like that. Nobody wants to hear that stuff. So I've really been trying to encourage them not to speak in such words that is just galvanizing to the small group of people that will vote for you anyways, but rather reach, reach, use influence and and say words in such a way that can be digested by, quote, the other side and not just taken offense to. So, you know, that's the things I'm trying to work with when people in, in their messaging is, is how do you how do you say something that just doesn't galvanize? your base against the other base, but rather stops and has people say, well, tell me more. I've never thought about it that way before. And, and those are sorts of conversations that are actually, you know, persuasive in nature that actually might move the needle just a little bit. So that's just, that takes a little bit of self accountability that it's not just this one sided thing that the elections are rigged and, you know, everything's against us. Well, actually you haven't put a, you haven't put a really great candidate <laughs> with a real great message either. So let's get busy at that too. Yeah, I mean, we probably won't totally agree on that subject as far as the rigging of the elections, but I, I will say that I, I like what your approach is that to try to just use that as a me- mechanism to awaken more people. I think that's well said, especially when we look at the Republican and, and Democrat parties, which are all just one party with two different faces in the end of the day. There's not a lot of difference in its organizational structure when you get high up to the top. So the one advantage I think Oregon has is it's a very independent aligned state and majority of voters in Oregon are independent and it gives an opportunity to bring up a pretty interesting dialogue. I would assume you're kind of seeing the same thing up in Portland. It is, but the challenge here, even naturally, just by default and how people think, and especially here in Portland and Oregon, the best of the quote left typically go into some sort of politics or service, community service in some level, the, the best of the quote right typically goes into private business, private enterprise. So just by default, you kind of have this these non-fair teams of intellect and persuasive nature and, and abilities to to get stuff done on the on the political side because the best of the right just isn't in politics. They're doing things in the private sector. So it's been interesting to watch people at debating and what I'm looking at this. I'm like, man, this would be an easy conversation for anybody of in business to handle, but it's being botched by a quote politician just because they're not great. 
at it. And so, you know, it's kind of a non-fair fight here as well. So I'm trying to get people that are just good human beings to have a little bit more balanced approach to actually realize that you just can't say you don't do politics because what's the saying? If you don't do politics, politics does you. And we're seeing that here. When I was in Portland, one of the issues that was interesting is the, the kind of the myopic view of Portland itself. There was a, a view that Portland was almost like it it was Oregon. Oh. And it was always interesting to hear that because Portland is anything but Oregon would be a better way of saying it. Yeah. Are you still finding that attitude there? Oh, man, it's so funny. I'll travel around and people will be like, you know, don't let people Portland my Oregon. <laughs> you know, they'd be on the beach or let's say the, the gorge or somewhere in central Oregon. And they're like, don't let Portland get everywhere. And it, it, unfortunately, it, the way th- certain things are here in Oregon from the structure. For, so, for instance, the governor appoints. We don't have an elected czar or head of education. It's an appointed position. So, of course, that becomes an extension of the political party in the, in the, in the governor's office. Right. So um, the, the education system. So just Portland really does get um, infused into the rest of the state just because of the way the system is set up here to a degree right except it like i mentioned before and when we talked earlier in the week the county sheriffs are going to be real interesting in this next step because county sheriffs have pretty much taken an agreement 35 out of the 36 that they will not enforce any unconstitutional laws in their counties that puts the state on its heels and i think it's it's a it's constitutionally sound what they're doing and that will be lead to a very interesting future in Oregon. I will say that. I'm a, I was incredibly glad to hear that. I hadn't heard that yet. I was incredibly glad to hear that because that's what's necessary. I mean, that's that's your fail safe, right? Um, that's that. That was glad to hear that. I haven't gone any further with that information since you told me that. But I'm I'm really glad to hear that from you. Yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting part of the fight. I think, and I think that's across the nation. I'm not sure that as a nation, what we're seeing so far, and we, we've seen the corruption of the political parties and the corruption of the political offices. And really the only real control mechanism that we have is local. So when we talk about election integrity, I think we can keep election integrity pretty solid on a local level. When we start to let it be handled by whoever, once it heads up to the state and into federal that's where I think we get pretty sketchy. But I do believe truly in the local, local fight because I think that's where we make the difference in changing this nation. And that that changes a lot in how we see things across this country. We're in complete agreement with that. Um, the By just the design, us having semi, also say semi-sovereign states as a republic is, is utterly genius. And it really, but it does also show how a country like ours that is so wildly diverse and th- some of the cost of freedom is having to deal with people being free to be knuckleheads. And, you know, I, I, I wrestle with this because you definitely want a, a community that's peaceful and kind and, and prosperous. Um, but if you want it to be free, you're going to have the element that you have to deal with all day, every day that wants to take that away from you. And unless you're honest about that, it's going to grow and it's going to fester and it's going to get its way into politics and business and the school system and everything else. And that's why we are where we are in Portland. It just didn't get stepped up against people didn't people didn't set down their freaking phones and get activated. People didn't aren't willing to risk their their job. Um, to say something that's on their mind for feel of being canceled. It's it's this lack of spine. It's this lack of conviction for standing up 
for the things that you believe in because the hope is somebody else does it for you. That has to stop. And and we saw the, the effects of that here in Portland where people just sat back on their couch and let the city, you know, burn for 100, over 100 straight days and didn't do anything. And here we are. So what businesses remain in these downtown areas? Because the pictures I've seen, it looks pretty much like a war zone. It is, um, you know, and the, the mayor is trying to do this comeback to downtown Portland and they try to do this event, um, you know, to bring people shopping event back to downtown. But then it was the middle of like, well, do we wear a mask or not? And then that that, that got diluted with the, the mass debate. And so it, it's just uh, nobody trusts the government anymore here. Nobody trusts that the mayor can handle anything. And the police don't even trust him. The police, you know, there was a whole downfall when the governor was trying to, you know, send uh, Multnomah County or state state police officers here. They said, no, we're not even going to go support Portland police because we don't want to risk our guys to arrest somebody. They only have the DA not press any charges and just let them go. So we're not going to come support you. So the Portland police were left on an island. So, no, so when there's lack of trust um, like that, it, it just really puts everybody on edge. And if you walk around downtown right now, Scott, I mean, it's going to be you're going to be met with some sort of homeless. You're going to be met with some sort of weird uh, interaction with somebody likely. And I don't mean to make this sound like it's you know more dramatic than it is. Of course, just parts of Portland are still beautiful. You can go shop and have dinner, and it's no problem. But it's a different city than it was you know two years ago. Even different city. So uh, d- downtown Portland is a, a ghost town, a zombie ghost town of what it once was. Wow, that's that's tragic, but at the same time, well earned, I guess I would say. Putting this together, when we start to look at a city and we start to see it's this view of kind of acceptance and, and acquiescence to the to the end of of what it was and accepting this new normal so to speak there is from a business point of view there's no incentive to have businesses there from a um, living point of view living has degraded but people can be can use selective choices in their life and a lot of cognitive dissonance to be able to experience exactly what they want but kind of blind out the other way for those that are there, what are they expecting to be a future of Portland? I think there's a lot of eyes on this on this campaign and this you know selection season. I think from the city council um, to the governor race, there's a lot of eyes on that, and I think a lot of people are waiting to see if they're going to stay or go in Portland, depending on what happens in these races. So, um, but here's what's going to happen when. Let's say that there's a couple of seats in the city council that's lost to more moderate minds uh, or policymakers, or something happens and we don't end up with Tina Kotek at the governor's state. I think that's going to activate again the kind of underbelly again to really get aggressive again to try and regain some power. So even if there is some wins, let's say in the election cycle, I actually think for the short term that's going to cause some chaos. That's my own personal my own personal thought and observation, and they're not going to give up any sort of leverage easily. And, and I, I think these people running for, for office that are, that are quote, the right mouthpiece are going to face some political and personal hardships, and they're going to face some ad, adversities that I don't think that they're quite ready for. Um, you know, they, they definitely are, are very aggressive in their, in their way of trying to get into your psychology, get into your family, get into your business, overtake your social media, you know, <laughs> hijack your emails, hijack, hijack anything they can. Um, and, and I think that they're going to, they're going to see actually what Portland, the underside of Portland's actually really like. So just to kind of close that in then what do those that are doing this violence, what is the vision that they have for the cities? I can't pretend to 
say that it's a, a rational thought, but in their mind, a utopia exists when there's, I mean, you saw this when they tried to create their autonomous zones, all right, carving out a place where no rules apply to them. The psychosis happens when, right when they do that, then what do they do? They form their own police force. They have their own taxation system. They, they, they implement the same system they were just trying to get away from on their quote, their own people inside of that. So there's a there's a disconnect between what they think is a utopia and what actually happens when you add humanity <laughs> into the scenario. And I would have some conversations with people downtown, you know, when I have a mask on, we're sitting there talking, they're talking about they wanting the fall of, of the police and defund the police and no judicial system and no taxes and we're on stolen land anyways. And this is indigenous land, so we need to give it back to the people and we shouldn't even be here. And so we're at the mercy of just, you know, treating each other right and we could have our own fun. I'm like, you, you realize, you realize what happens in chaos that might <laughs> rises up, that, that a, a fucking tyrannical leader that leads with violence and force always fills the void in any of these chaotic situations. You realize that if you if you tear the structure down, the people that want safe spaces and, and are confused with their pronouns are not going to be free. They're going to be the slaves of a new system that comes up for quite some time. So enjoy the protections that this system has and that it, that it affords you right now. Because if you tear this thing down, you're gonna you're gonna really invite tyranny and you're gonna really invite chaos and might and rule. And and that's not something that you're gonna want. But they don't understand that, Scott. So, but they they believe that if you tear down what is America, that a utopia will arise. And that's not my opinion. What will happen? And it's also good reasons for people to get activated to keep it from happening. When is that documentary coming out? So we're in production now. Um, again, uh, the story. So what I want to do with the documentary is it's actually not a, a documentary style. It's really in a movie style like you and like we, we talked about, I don't want to have much narration. I want it to be narrated by the hundreds upon hundreds of hours of interviews. I would sit in somebody's living room for three hours and have a conversation or four hours or, or, you know, fly to them and, and we'd sit in their environment or, or so we got these interviews from these people that are just as deep as you can get in their psychology and their reason for being. And so that's the narration. So I had to hire a couple of screenplay writers to weave all these things together and to look through the lens of history a little bit to go back to the 60s, to go back to the uh, Red Summer in Oklahoma, to go back to some other points in time. Even the Rodney King riots that happened in 93, I tracked down the chief of police of Orange County, LA County, that were in charge of those riots back in the day and, and interviewed them to find out some parallels, what was happening. So it's taking a lot longer and I, I expect this to be done in about four months. I want it to be out this, this year for sure. Outstanding. What's kind of the objective of the film you're hoping? Um, it's, I think it's a really eye-opening expression of the fallibility of man. I think that we as a society and as a political party or as these groups, we lack some self-awareness into just how, how fallible we really are, how our biases creep in, how manipulated we are by social media, how manipulated we are, uh, how easily we allow ourselves to get our emotions hijacked by headlines and people at work. And so I really hope that the villain of the of the story and this is my personal opinion this is not i'm not speaking for the documentary itself that the villain of the story just being just becomes mankind of itself and and we just kind of see how imperfect we are and when we have a little bit of self-awareness maybe we can understand the imperfections of each other we're just seeing the fallibility of mankind expressed in contemporary forms um and then and then we do get manipulated by things that we've never had to deal with before like algorithms on our phones 
So I really just hope that people stop and they're like, holy shit, it's everything I thought that it was. And then it's everything that I didn't want it to be. And I hope people stop in their tracks and be like the other side of the coin that they didn't think it was or didn't think it ever could be is exposed to them. And it gets people to just to pause. That's that's my hope. Take them to the cliff, the edge of this cliff. And then they get to choose that they want to jump from there. That's my personal hope. Those are the best of the stories when the when the story itself tells itself. That's that is the best. And it doesn't need direction by somebody else's interpretation. It's a hard thing to do because you want to make sense of it. You know, you're sitting there and you're looking at the footage. And you're like, oh, this is what makes sense. But the minute you do that is the minute you make it your story. So at the beginning, I was talking with Sony, HBO, Netflix, and a few others about distribution and whatnot and funding. And I just decided to keep it in-house. I personally funded it myself to keep the integrity. I hired people on the team or or worked with people on the team that um, – um, you know, had a diverse look, like I said, that didn't become a particular kind of story. And it was it's a challenge, man, because you really want to make sense of things. But the more you try to make sense of it, the, the more propaganda. And I just didn't want to contribute to the noise. There's plenty of noise out there. Well, it's a noble project. And I, I can appreciate what you're going through because it's the hardest stories are those that are you're literally just taking events and bringing them together to give people an experience that in the end, when they've gone through it, it transforms them. I'm I'm completely a different human being than I was a couple of years ago, and and I was watching some footage again last night. I was actually watching footage of the six last night, and I got re- really emotional, um, you know, just watching that footage and watching things unfold, and and hearing the things that they were saying again. And it's a it's an incredible emotional thing to watch human beings in such desperation and in such. Uh, in such a mode that they're fearful of their future, that they're willing to do anything to try and change it. And, and they become a person I didn't know they could become. And I hated seeing that, you know, time after time after time, no matter what side they were on. Well, Eric, we always close with a prayer. So if it's okay with you, we'll close with a prayer. Please. Father, we want to thank you today for bringing this meeting together. It's just one another blessed voice in this fight to try to raise the understanding of who we are and trying to build bridges across what sometimes seems to be impossible divides. So we just ask that you'll continue to guide Eric's work and give him the blessings of all that he's doing to continue to provide a story that'll reach people's hearts and minds to have them open to see truly a reflection deep in a mirror of who we are and how we ourselves as humanity can become better. And so we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So it's a great project, Eric, and I, I wish you the best. Keep in touch on this too because I'd, I'd like to... Um, you know, as you get closer, I, you're saying you're about four months out roughly. Yeah. Uh, just for fun. I'll send you a link to the trailer if you want to watch it six minutes. Um, but it's, it's not in the, in the style at which it's going to be. It's, it's a narrated version. We're just setting up some of the questions, but you'll see some of the shots that we get because in, in these areas, we were the only camera that was there or we're the only camera that's close or we're the only camera that was allowed there. And so the shots that we got are just incredible. Well, yeah, I look forward to seeing it. That's fantastic. Well, you're so articulate and, and passionate, and I hope that our paths cross a little bit. I'd love to learn more about the things you're working on, too. Oh, absolutely. No, they definitely will. So, And what's next for you, then, in the, in the, in the coming weeks? Just the film, or you've got other things going on? Yeah, just the film. Well, I'm, I'm wrapping up uh, like my business, like at a restaurant here and whatnot. I'm wrapping up. I'm done serving Portland in a bricks and mortar sort of capacity. Portland's not a place I want to invest my time and resources in anymore. So I'm shutting that down this week. So I've got a lot going on here. I'm working on my own podcast and then a book. As a result of it, the, the the documentary is called Revelations and Tear Gas. Uh, my book is likely titled Star Stripes and Tear Gas. 
which is just an exploration of kind of the chaos, you know, that's within our country. Um, so those are, those are the projects I'm really, really working on now. And, and then on the side, you know, I do a bunch of consulting work for startups and, and startup businesses in, in different things. So that's how I make my living, but these are my passion projects right now. That's awesome. Well, best of luck to you and all that. Eric, thanks very much and have a very blessed day, man. God bless. Thank you. Well, Patriots, that was, uh, Eric post and, uh, real interesting. I think a real interesting person and a real interesting activity. He's involved in a project. I've seen just some of the pieces, some clips from his film, fantastic footage. And hopefully the story comes out to really kind of show the events as they were so people can kind of experience them. A lot of times with film is a very difficult thing in trying to present context and um, and trying to keep it neutral in a situation like this is going to be very difficult because Antifa is not a group that has any interest in having neutrality, uh, neither with anarchists. Their vision is pretty simple, burn it all down and uh, destroy it all and take everybody with them as they go. But we'll see how the film comes out, and I'll, and I'll definitely keep you posted as it moves forward. The biggest thing about all of this interview tonight is this is somebody who just took action. They got involved, and from that they've gone from being involved in a city that they cared about great a great deal to moving to trying to do everything they could to bridge a space between two opposing sides getting to know the real motives behind that sorting out those that were willing to listen and those that were ideologically uh, committed to their path and not wanting to hear anything and I think it does show a, a pretty deep fallacy within humankind we're easily manipulated as people that's just a reality, and we're easily manipulated by fear-mongering and people that like to fan the flames of fear-mongering, and we get swayed very easily there. We get wrapped up, and we have an apprehension as a people to want to call that out. We have an apprehension to want to speak truth against it. We want, we've been conditioned by too much of this sort of Christian pew mentality that we're supposed to sit quiet and say nothing. That's not the path that I walk, and it's not the path I think we sh we can walk in this nation. We have to be able to flip tables. You have to be able to call things out as they are, and that's the way it is. And it, and for those that want to try to hold that line of silence on the side, this is what we get. We've arrived here because there's been too much complacency. Sadly, the left has taken a deep hold in our cities, and they are consuming these cities and holding that territory. And that's not going to give up. They're not going to give that up easily. You've heard the, the confirmation bias that's occurred within Portland or the kind of the acceptance of the new normal that where they've accepted now that just part of this new life is that instead of correcting the problem, we're just going to go out and have to take up needles off of a, a soccer field where your son wants to play. Portland has fallen deeply into a bowels and pits of darkness and it was already on the cusp, but now it's really there. And I think really what we're seeing about our cities is we're seeing the true nature of what they really were. And it's for those that stay and, and, and revel in that pit of, of misery, then they're going to pay a price for it. And it's not a price of anything other than the reality that they choose will be the reality that they live. So we have a, a lot of work to do in our nation, and these sorts of interviews give us a deep insight into what type of challenges lie ahead, and there are many. And the one thing that we have to continue to pursue is that path of truth and being objective on the truth, but be decisive on the truth. It means also to be vocal on it and not to let these things 
stand and just and go unspoken. What Eric Post has done here is is great because he has gone out and he isn't just standing by. He's a great example for others. He's a person who wasn't a filmmaker. He was a business person who decided it was necessary to get out and start to be active and involved. And whether or not that mission is successful by terms of however we gauge that, it is successful in the piece that it's another person standing up and being bold about it and being courageous about it. So something to take home and to really think about and to try to be more involved in our communities. Our communities need to be places that we can live peacefully, not places where we live in fear, not places where we accept the, the, the destruction of morals and values as a common and a normal place. It's not a place where we can accept that children are being groomed into some sort of feeder program for the for this whole LGBTQ pedophile nonsense. That's not acceptable. And those are the, in order to keep an open and free society, we're going to have to be vigilant like watchers on the wall. Equally, we have the responsibility to listen and not to fan the flames of fear, to be level-headed, and to encourage people to have dialogue and to research and dig. Those things are going to be constant, and that's part of the responsibility of living in a republic. And that's truly, as Ben Franklin said, you now have a republic. Good luck keeping it. We have a lot of work to do, and we'll get there, but it's going to take a lot of awakening across the entire spectrum of what we're accustomed to doing. So keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. We're in a real amazing time right now, and uh, our prayers are more important than ever. God is with us. He'll never forsake us, and in the end, God will win. But we're here in this time, in this place, for such a time as this. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Mission forward. I'll see you tonight for Fishers of Men. Until then or until the next time, God bless and out for now. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable and we believe they can do it again. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs and hardships, as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer, to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston 
This state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who move forward, and so will space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. The energy, the faith, the devotion, which we bring to this endeavor, will light our country and all who serve it. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. thousands of years to show its face. It has only one intent, to destroy God's light and to enslave. It has no scruples. It has no rules but one, to win at any cost. But we will never bow, for we are the remnant that will hold the line. This is war. We fight. Push. We climb. We never give in. We become the nightmare that evil didn't know could exist. We pray. We stand. We live by the words in God we trust. We fear nothing. We are the light that can never be extinguished. We are patriots. We are the digital army that will help deliver God's wrath. <laughs> 